What's up, QAA listeners? The fun games have begun. I found a way to connect to the internet. I'm sorry, boy. Welcome, listener, to Chapter 181 of the QAnon Anonymous Podcast, the Mount Shasta episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rokotansky, Brad Abrahams, Julian Fields, and Travis View. This week, we are bringing you a big, chunky episode written and prepared by one of our favorite people in the field, Brad Abrams, the director of many documentaries like Love and Saucers and Do You See What I See, which we covered in our episode about pilled artist David Dee's Rest in Peace. And that was also the last time Brad was on the podcast, so really excited to have you back on, and welcome back, buddy. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. This episode is going to be about Mount Shasta, a decades-long spiritual vortex for multiple New Age movements, cults, conspiracy theories of all kinds, cryptids, and all of this in the great state of California. Brad's short documentary on the topic, Telos or Bust, really whet our appetite for the topic, so I'm really excited to jump into this. But... Before that, we've got some good news for those who support us on Patreon. Every main episode, like this one, will now be posted to the premium feed, which is something that people have requested for a while, so you can get everything there in one place as it comes out. And this will be the first main episode to get this treatment. And speaking of the premium feed, we are cooking up some very special stuff for it. It's going to be running through about the next year or two, actually. And we'll be revealing more about that at the end of the month, so look forward to that. Anyways, time to get comfortable, clear your mind of bad vibrations, and get ready to ascend into 5D or descend into Telos, depending if you're in uppers or downers. Mount Shasta, California. Several years ago, while meditating one morning, Trungpa Rinpoche appeared to me and took me into the blue sky above Mount Shasta. He pointed toward the Shasta Valley and with a sweep of his arm that encompassed the area from Mount Shasta to Mount Ashland said, This is the new Shambhala. I saw that many people would be coming to the area, drawn by a similar vision. I saw many spiritual centers, temples and retreats, domes, new types of buildings constructed in harmony with nature to house this inflow of seekers that the masters would invite. And I felt elated to be alive at the time of this great awakening, to be part of the building of the new Shambhala. That was a quote from Peter Mount Shasta. There's a tiny town in Northern California which rests at the foothills of a mountain of the same name. Over a hundred New Age and spiritual groups have had their genesis here including a right-wing secessionist movement lurking in the surrounding counties. Its status as a sacred site to the indigenous communities in the area goes back thousands of years. There are legends of inner earth cities, advanced denizens of long-lost continents, monumental magical bell makers, and ascended masters. It's a hotspot of UFOs, Sasquatch, little people, and portals into other dimensions. Without expert guidance, the amount of competing groups and beliefs could make your head explode with ectoplasm. The bravest of us are to go deeper and deeper into the bowels of the mountain, where we'll uncover the when, how, and why all these strange things converge under Mount Shasta, California. Tell us or bust. Who am I to take you on this journey? Some of you may remember me from my QAA interview about my documentary on David Dees, or my film Love and Saucers about David Huggins, the man who claimed to lose his virginity to an extraterrestrial woman. For the uninitiated, I'm a documentary filmmaker telling stories about people and subcultures deemed fringe by the mainstream. I've made films about UFO abductees, cryptozoologists, weird scientists, and conspiracy theorists, always approaching my subjects with a non-judgmental and intimate lens. I'm mostly interested in the nature of these beliefs and what we can learn about consciousness and psychology through them. But secretly and perhaps foolheartedly, I also want to believe. 
One day, my friend and collaborator Kai Wada Roth regaled me with tales of Mount Shasta. It sounded like a vortex of all my interests spinning and converging around one single place. Along with my producer friend Matt Ralston, we embarked on a film project there, eventually to become a proof-of-concept pilot for a documentary series exploring little-known folklore around the world. Within a few months of that day, we arrived in a breathtakingly beautiful place with pure spring water flowing from spigots, ten crystal shops, twice as many churches including a Zen abbey, and sweet residents with head-scratching, sometimes problematic, but mostly benign beliefs. We chose five very special, very different Shasta luminaries to feature in our story, of whom you'll hear throughout the episode. The first is Diane Robbins, who describes herself as a scribe. Ascended beings merge with her consciousness and write their messages through her. She's one of the main players in the propagation of the Telos legend, and its most famous blonde-haired and blue-eyed ascendant resident, Adama. She's quite old and frail, donning a wardrobe of pastel-colored shirts emblazoned with the word Telos in a house full of crystals and dolphin figurines. Ashlyn is also a channeler, and leads people up the mountain to take them into Telos through guided meditation. She's channeled multiple beings known as Ascended Masters, as well as animals, into several books. Bill Meese is the town's historian who has a yurt that houses his library of thousands of books. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the myths and their origins, but doesn't use this as a way to invalidate people's beliefs. This hardened academic had his own mind-blowing experience on the mountain, which we'll hear about later. Shahan is the second of our skeptics. She works at the visitor center and knows everyone and everything going on in town. But the more she talks, the more it's revealed that she has her own spiritual beliefs beyond her critical exterior. And then there's Peter Mount Shasta, the self-deprecating guru figure. He believes in channeling ascended masters like Saint Germain and a mystic brotherhood under the mountain, but not that there's a city named Telos down there. With this cast, we hiked the mountain, drank the water, took part in a guided meditation, doused for portals, and drank in a veterans bar where we heard of patrons in hooded cloaks who pay their tabs with Lemurian crystals. <laughs> we heard many variations on the same theme. There's a hidden metropolis underneath the mountain inhabited by immortal, perfect beings, and the seekers living in the town desperately want to find the entrance. But this really only scratches at the surface of the mountain. So let us board a Lemurian airship, descend through a lenticular cloud, and enter into the inner earth. Take me, take me, I am <laughs> on board, me. like please, Destroy oh. me. Can this also disintegrate me in the process? Please. <laughs> but quickly, here's a mention of my sources. I'm deeply indebted to historian Bill Meese, whose work on a complete annotated bibliography of Mount Shasta, which includes over 2,000 texts, has created the most cogent history of the myths and legends. I also used Emily A. Frank's Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain, and a book called The Legends of Mount Shasta by a man named Juan Hu Nu, which I'm not sure is a... <laughs> Pseudonym or not. Oh, that uh, destroys Juan O'Savin. <laughs> that, that is much better. Juan who knew. And lastly, a podcast called The Nonsense Bazaar, which has a fun and never-ending series on the Ascended Masters. A mountain as lonely as God. When I first caught sight of it over the braided folds of the Sacramento Valley, I was 50 miles away and afoot, alone and weary. Yet all my blood turned to wine, and I have not been weary since. John Muir. 1874. Mount Shasta has been called the keystone of California scenery and California's Mount Fuji. It's a compound stratovolcano with a peak of 14,000 feet. It's located in Siskiyou County, California, about 60 miles south of Oregon and 60 miles north of Redding, the largest nearby town. The volcano is dormant at the moment, but has erupted 10 times in the last 3,500 years. There's a 1 in 25 chance it could erupt in any given decade, and a 1 in 4 chance of it erupting in a person's lifetime. There's evidence of indigenous groups living in the area as far back as 4,500 years, 
and artifacts in the larger county have been dated to 9,000 years. The groups currently living in the area are the Shasta, Modoc, Atsuwegi, and the Wintu. The name Shasta solidified in 1850, but before that it was known variably as Shast, Sast, Chast, Chasty, and Shasty, which is my personal favorite. <laughs> Nasty <The> Shasty. <laughs> before becoming a spiritual mecca, the town was known as Berryville because of all the fruit grown there. The building of a railway turned it into a logging town and also brought tourism to the area. The county has been home to a secessionist movement which calls for an independent state of Jefferson, encompassing Northern California and Southern Oregon. The original movement lived and died in the 40s, but in the last couple decades has been reignited, mostly as a right-wing and libertarian movement, which we'll talk about more later. There is a pull to Shasta that's undeniable when one arrives, but beyond the obvious visual majesty, it's difficult to put into words. Let's hear Shahan from the Visitor Center and then Diane Robbins articulate it better than I. The Tibetans have that term, I don't know how to pronounce it, Beyul, B-E-Y-U-L, means secret places in nature where the pure of heart may know spirit through nature. And that is what I believe that Mount Shasta is about. So we have people from all over the world who come here and they're out walking the trails. You know, they're kayaking, they're swimming. You're not necessarily in a workshop with some metaphysical teacher. You're experiencing the spirit through nature. I love that because it's a grounded way of having your spirituality. To me, that's important, and I think that's why I'm here too. Yes, people, a lot of people are drawn here because the mountain of Mount Shasta is a gateway to God. She is a living cathedral, a sanctuary. She is heart energy. She is divine feminine. And she is putting out a call to people all over the earth to come here because she is the energy of home. People are searching for home. They're searching for answers. They want to know, who am I? Why am I here? What did I come here to do? Just incredibly charming people, all, all of them. You really do find subjects that seem kind and gentle. Yeah, and, and what you know, the listeners can't see is that Diane, the second one in that clip, she's constantly moving. She can't sit down, apparently, because of the energy that's flowing through her, which made her really difficult to film, mm. especially in an interview. Oh, gotcha. The spiritual energy has uh, made her have the zoomies. <laughs> I was going to say, we experienced a similar interview subject, uh, an actor by the name of Tom Arnold, um, <laughs> yeah, although I yeah. don't think it was the energy of, of Mount Shasta that was flowing <laughs> through him. 200 years of imaginary friends. Any responsible telling of the history of Shasta legends must begin with the indigenous people that have called the area home for millennia. One example are the Klamath groups, who tell a creation story of a sky spirit named Skell, who came from heaven to reside within the mountain. Skell battled the below-world spirit of nearby Mount Mazama, also known as Crater Lake, by hurling rocks and lava at the spirit of the underworld. The Modoc tell stories of the Matakagmi, more colloquially known as Bigfoot, who is the protector of the woods. The Coyote is another cultural hero of some of the tribes, playing the familiar trickster role. Many of these legends were recorded by a man named Joaquin Miller, an early voice for Native American rights. He published these widely read accounts in the 1870s, a decade or two before the white European legends materialized. The idea of God spirits residing in the mountain undoubtedly influenced the Eurocentric legends to come. In contemporary times, there's been a fraught relationship between some of the indigenous groups and the New Agers, 
Here's a few clips from a 2001 documentary called In the Light of Reverence. The first is a member of the Wintu tribe on spiritual appropriation. Then we hear a white woman speak on racial identity. And finally, an encounter between forestry staff and nearly naked blonde hippies during the harmonic convergence in 1987. A lot of the new age begins to look to traditional native or traditional indigenous peoples for uh, some answers to their own uh, spiritual bankruptcy, uh, to their own uh, need for, for their own self-gratification. I feel I've been Native American. I feel I've been black. I know I've been Chinese, <laughs> Egyptian. Many, many different things. So you know this area is sacred to the Wintu tribe? We it do. feels very sacred, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about the Wintu tribe. Florence Jones, she's oh, a yeah. shaman. Mm -hmm. She's one of the last native speakers of the Wintu. They never camped here at all. They came up here for ceremonies. And they've told us some of the things that they have a hard time with, and that's nudity when people are nude here, which is often, I mean, totally nude, sunbathing. Because it offends, it's like their church. So like mm -hmm. if you walked into their church nude. The area means things, um, has a sim symbolism that it's difficult for me as a Westerner to really comprehend it, but if somebody <laughs> desecrated that. Well, how would being nude be yeah, desecrated? Yeah, nudity is no desecration. To her, see, it is, but... Ah, yeah. Well, not yeah. the barriers that if she has. If a little yeah. child walks to the spring yeah. and takes some water... That's not our blocks. A child is innocent. Well, their tradition is not to bring any children up here because they think that spring is too powerful. Well, we definitely feel the sacredness of it. We want to treat it with that sacredness and live in that ceremonial way that the Native Americans did. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> I I want to like you know crack some hippie heads right now. Yeah, that's a bunch of like yeah the people at the end they're just a bunch of white hippies in a circle and they're so funny. It's like well no they don't like nudity and no they don't bring their children here because of this and it's like well dude I mean a nude kid fucking drinking water in the stream dude what's more fucking holy than that dude? <laughs> and by nude child I mean me after I snort PCP. <laughs> I am a child of God after all. <laughs> Yeah, we're here to drop acid like the Native Americans did. <laughs> Messages from Beyond. The history of Mount Shasta myths can be seen as a hundred-year game of telephone or a game of exquisite corpse. Most of the work of the seminal authors of these legends comes from information that's been communicated by entities from other planes of existence, an act called channeling. Here's Asha Lynn describing the different types of channelers. Well, there's different kinds of channeling. It's, it's communicating messages from spirit beings through your body. I'm a conscious channel, which means I hear, I, I usually sense the presence of one of those spirits next to me, and then I directly listen to whatever thoughts he or she feeds to me. And um, I am consciously aware, I know what I'm talking about, I can ask some questions. Okay, if you're a full body channel, your spirit being or your higher self leaves your body and that spirit being you're talking to comes into your body and uses your voice box and your mouth and sometimes your facial features change and quite often you don't know what you're talking about. So it's letting spirit communicate through you in different ways. This is going to permanently cause Travis to have one eye squinted <laughs> and like his brow furrowed. <laughs> <laughs> just locked, locked in that you, position we have stun locked travis folks <laughs> and as an example of what a full body channeling session sounds like 
Here's Shasta resident Asara Adams, a trance channeler for the Palladian Syrian Arcturian Council of Light. Here she channels Adama of Telos. As she speaks, imagine some wild gesticulating and rocking back and forth. Greetings, <laughs> beloved brothers and sisters. We send you our utmost love from the heart of Telos, dear ones. We are most pleased to have you all here with us today. There is so much shifting around you and reorchestrating itself, collapsing within itself and recreating itself. At split seconds of your time, measurements, worlds are being created and collapse again and recreated. Yes, indeed. Honestly, I would usually blame this kind of behavior on like Cards for Humanity or something where it's like, oh, well, you got to do cracked out Baby Yoda. Sorry, that's your that's the that's the prompt. Yeah. Every time I see spirits, they claw wildly at the air. They're kind of smiling. Dude, she's she, she is like I, I, it was that is an experience to watch that person. Well, and that, you know, that was like a minute uh, or less than a minute cut down from a two hour long channeling <laughs> session. She has such endurance. Like what? I mean, physically that would be exhausting. She is I, the, probably the most tense of any person. Like every part of her is like squinted up and like, you know, she's swinging around wildly. Um, very impressive stuff. While channeling may outwardly seem bizarre and ridiculous, I don't want to be too quick to cast a blanket judgment. Honest channelers in a full trance state could perhaps be accessing their subconscious which can be a fantastic source for insight and creativity, like the automatic drawings of Austin Osman Spare. Phylos, the Tibetan. When we talk about the modern legends of Mount Shasta, all crystalline paths lead to one book, A Dweller on Two Planets. It was written by a teenager in the late 1880s who claimed the story was transmitted by the voice of an ethereal being known as Phylos the Tibetan. The teen, named Frederick Spencer Oliver, wrote the channeled tome while living in the nearby town of Wairika with a clear view of the mountain. Here's historian Bill Meese on the book and the effect it can have on the reader. Part of Philos's story was in Atlantis. And the first half of the book is all about life in Atlantis 25,000 years ago. Second half of the book is about Philos, you know, he had an incarnation. And there's a second incarnation as a gold miner in Northern California in the Gold Rush era. And that's what the second half of the book is about. And it takes place around Mount Shasta and inside Mount Shasta. And it's a very very powerful book. Spiritually, it talks about reincarnation as if written by somebody who has actually reincarnated and knows the ins and outs of that experience. And you read it and you'll believe it. It's very well written. And you go, oh my God, this is really, maybe this guy really knows what he's talking about. So um, part of that story is an initiation that this gold miner has He's led into this inside, a gate opens, a portal, a rock gate opens into Mount Shasta. He goes in with a friend of his who is one of the masters. And they meet a bunch of spiritual adepts. Bunch is not the right word. But they meet a group of very advanced spiritual masters inside Mount Shasta, who then initiate this gold miner into the secrets of reincarnation. And they give him the choice whether to leave his body there on Earth and travel with them through the different realms of reincarnation. And he decides to do it, and the, the book takes on from there. 
A dweller on two planets was the first source of a mystic brotherhood in the mountain with a tunnel that led into a secret city. The long tunnel stretches away, far into the interior of majestic Shasta. Wholly unthought is that there lie at the tunnel's far end vast apartments, the home of a mystic brotherhood whose occult arts hollowed that tunnel and mysterious dwelling. Are you incredulous as to these things? Go there, or suffer yourself to be taken as I was once. See as I saw, not with the vision of flesh. The walls polished as by jewelers, though excavated as by giants. Floors carpeted with long, fleecy gray fabric that looked like fur, but was a mineral product. Ledges intersected by the boulders, and in their wonderful polish, exhibiting veinings of gold, of silver, of green copper ores, and maculations of precious stones. Verily, a mystic temple, made afar from the matting crowd. That's by Phylos the Tibetan. Mm. It sounds like the, uh, the line to the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. <laughs> Anyways, uh, allow me to return to panning for gold. It was also the first source to combine the continent of Lemuria, the channeling of discarnate entities, and the concept of I am, which was later used as a crux of an influential religion. It had some weirdly prescient descriptions of future technology, like anti-gravity-powered aircraft and submarines, television, wireless communication, air conditioners, and high-speed rail. It also describes an Atlantean airship, which now sounds similar to those cigar-shaped UFOs often described. It was called a Valix, and had an open promenade lined with crystalline portholes through which passengers would enjoy the view of the Earth down below. The Lemurian Revival. Well, that's crazy. There's a there's a an Elden Ring area called Lemuria. Hmm. I wonder if okay. I wonder if they did their Mount Shasta research yeah. as well. A man named Harv Spencer Lewis, under the brilliant pseudonym Wisher Spenley Serve, was the first to connect the Lost Continent of Lemuria to Mount Shasta in the 1930s tome, Lemuria, the Lost Continent of the Pacific. He was a member of the ancient and mystical order of the Rosicrucis, aka the Rosicrucians, who were major spreaders of Lemurian legends. Here the myth was born that citizens of the sunken land now live in a secret village at the foothills of the mountain, protected by an invisible force field. Of these Shasta Lemurians, he says, one of these oddly dressed individuals would come to one of the smaller towns and trade nuggets and gold dust for some modern commodities. These odd-looking persons were tall, graceful, and agile, with larger heads, much larger foreheads, headdresses that had a special decoration that came down over the center of the forehead to the bridge of the nose and thus hid or covered a part of the forehead that many have attempted to see and study. That's amazing. It's like they have a really... Covered forehead makes me wonder what's on it. <laughs> what size, what shape is this forehead? Can I study your skull, sir? <laughs> Around the same time, an elderly British man in Stockton, California, named J.C. Brown made an astonishing claim. He said that 30 years prior, in 1904, while prospecting for gold, he discovered a cave which led 11 miles into the mountain. Within its depths, he found an empty village filled with gold, weaponry, and mummies that were 10 feet tall. He recalls, Streets were laid out in the village. In one long room were laid at angles to the wall 27 skeletons, the smallest of which was 6 feet, 6 inches, and the tallest, more than 10 feet. In another room lay, apparently embalmed by some secret process, the bodies of a man and a woman, dressed in royal robes, who I believe were the king and queen of this race. I believe this race of people forms an important link in ancient American civilization. They were highly skilled craftsmen, as their work shows. Because there was a glow to three of these statues, I believe they use radium. Well, that's a really bad choice because they would be slowly poisoning themselves. 
Flashing forward again to 1934, he organized a team to accompany him back into that secret city he found so long ago. The team of 80 people spent six weeks getting organized leading up to the agreed-upon expedition day. But on that day, J.C. Brown never showed up and was never heard from or seen again. Oh, wow. An ultimate switcheroo. I am come. Okay. You just wanted Jake to say that. Admit it, Brad. Yes, of course. And it's not going to be the only time. <laughs> These days, Ascended Masters and Mount Shasta go together like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. But it was one man in his religious movement that injected the ether with it. Godfrey Ray King, a.k.a. Guy Ballard, and his I Am Religious movement were covered exhaustively in a previous QAA app, so I'll be merciful with the details here. His 1934 book, Unveiled Mysteries, described a seminal day when he was out hiking on Mount Shasta. He met a young man that gave him a cup of creamy white liquid to drink that invigorated him, and his life was never the same again. That young man was revealed to be the golden boy of the Ascended Masters, St. Germain. For more about the real life of the Count of St. Germain, Please fry what's left of your brains with QAA episode 167. I love you, Saint Germain. I love your violet flame. I love you, Saint Germain. <laughs> Historian Bill Meese has his own theory on who Guy Ballard may have actually met that seminal day. Well, okay, in 1931, um, there was an account of a mystic man. Um, his last name was Condé, I think. Long hair, mystic amulets, um, highly regarded mountaineer who lived for several summers on the top of Mount McLaughlin, just north of us. But he was a mountaineer, so in my mind, he was coming to Mount Shasta. He looks like the prototypical hippie of the 1960s and 70s. Um, very natural, very handsome, very beautiful guy living with this super long hair. My guess is that he came down to Mount Shasta, and that's who Guy Ballard actually met. Because this would have been some man that knew secrets of spirituality. So I think that that man, Condé, came down to Mount Shasta in 1931, met Guy Ballard. Guy Ballard got kind of the idea and mixed it all up with other legends, and we have the St. Germain legend. <laughs> Big if true. Yeah. The only other mention and props I'll give to IM is that they've developed a fantastic art style, which you should look up immediately after this episode. I did visit the group's reading room in Shasta, and what I saw I will take to my grave. But really, there were just some nice old folks there with wide eyes. I sat in a meditation room in front of a large light box illuminating a flickering violet flame. I was also, as an aside, approached by who I think this like Romanian man who just wanted to talk about Count Dracula and how he was really misunderstood. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Well. And wasn't St. Germain like a count? Like, wasn't he swindling a bunch of other people? Like, he didn't just do this. Right. Correct. The I Am version of St. Germain belongs to a race of beings known as Ascended Masters. They are said to have graduated to a loftier dimension from which they guard and guide our flawed and suffering species. They choose to only communicate with highly evolved humans, like the few we filmed in our documentary. Along with St. Germain, other masters include Jesus Christ, Metatron, Hoot Kumi, Melchizedek, Archangel Michael, and countless more. Hmm. Here's Diane Robbins on how one becomes a master. And all the people, all the people who have made their ascension and are called ascended masters, guess what? They're just like you and me. They're people who have had lifetime after lifetime after lifetime on planet Earth. And they reconnected to God, their I am presence, and they made their ascension, and they're now living in the fifth dimension, the ascended master realms. So ascended masters, they're just like us. 
Except, of course, you know, they can see all, all possible timelines at once within the fifth dimension. And here's Peter Mount Shasta on his relationship with St. Germain. I see St. Germain as sort of an older brother, a wise friend, guru. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor. Uh, he's someone who has been a cheerleader for me. He's che- cheered me up when I need help. Someone... Uh, I mean, I guess you could say a guru, you know, that role. (laughs) He's a football coach. (laughs) And here's Peter again on his journey to the inner earth with the Ascended Masters. This is going to sound crazy, but I'm in Mount Shasta, right? So (laughs) I went once with St. Germain on a UFO. Again, this is not in the flesh form, but it was very, very lucid. We went over the North Pole and down into the center of the earth. So... There are several times I've been to the interior of the earth in my higher body, and I did see a race there of beings where you would say that you were in paradise, you know, that they were loving, lived in harmony, were working on their own evolution, and also helping people on the surface also. And I was allowed to sit there and meditate in a temple. Um, So I know if that were to be, people could be taken in again into the center of the earth and that the masters know what's going on on the surface of the earth and that they work with what we would call the ETs, who are really our ancestors. And uh, that if needed, uh, those people that have finished their earth karma could be taken and spared some kind of cataclysm. Fun stuff. (laughs) The elephant in the room when it comes to these masters is that they look like an American firster's wet dream. They're mostly white, blonde, and blue-eyed. The PR person for Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who channeled the masters, and whom I will not speak about here for all of our sakes, had this to say when questioned about it. The Great White Brotherhood does not indicate racism. We do not discriminate. God does not discriminate against himself. Actually, the White Brotherhood means the white light of Christ, the perfect balance of all the rays. Mm Mm-hmm. And here's Peter, unfortunately, adding some fuel to the fire. The reason many of the masters are portrayed as, as white Caucasians uh, is because in the, higher, in the higher realm, we have light bodies. It's not that they're white bodies, they're light. So it's not pushing some kind of racial agenda, you know, um, just as there are ascended lady masters as well as as male. It's just that when a being appears in their light body, you see light. You know, it's beyond race completely. There's, you transcend, you transcend gender and race in the higher, in the higher worlds. Right. We all get to be white. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Ghosts, ghosts have no color. Okay. Ascended masters don't see color. Oh, you'd rather a shadow show up? A demon? Octavian Bells. We have one little pit stop before we arrive at Telos. Around the time of the I Am Activity's creation, a myth emerged even stranger and more clandestine than any other mentioned. In 1945, a man named Frederick Morrison wrote, According to the initiated, the greatest bells in the world are the bells of the secret commonwealth and the great city of Yoctavia that lie beneath the vast mass of Mount Shasta. 
The Octavians are reputed to be the greatest bell makers in the world. Okay, this is just Elden Ring lore. I, I'm sorry. It, it, it's, I, I thought that this game was original. I've been telling all my friends about it, strangers about it. Yeah. Um, and I see that they've just stolen everything from these Shasta myths. Uh, you must destroy the corrupt Octavians, Tarnished. <laughs> tarnished. You must travel to Yoctavia in the deep <laughs> crevice of Mount Shasta. There you will find the miner's bell bearing, too. Okay, um, back to reality. The Octavians are reputed to be the greatest bell makers in the world, and for tone and musical sound, their bells can't be surpassed. It was by the sound of bells and mighty chimes that the Octavians were able to move the vast amounts of rock within Mount Shasta and hollow out their city. There is a part of the slope of Mount Shasta on the northwest side that is always covered with snow and on which no ordinary man's foot has trod. On this portion of the mountain is a great bell made of a transparent substance that reflects no light. That is, it is invisible until you get within 18 inches of it. The wind striking the lip of this bell causes a sound so high-pitched and of such peculiar vibration that it repels any curious would-be trespassers on the holy ground that surrounds the entrance to the secret commonwealth. Imagine being someone who got 19 inches away from it. What a waste. <laughs> what a waste. A day in Telos. My fellow Inner Earth Voyagers, we made it to the mountain's most famous stop, Welcome to the secret city of Telos, where the Ascended Masters are living their best life. Though shrouded in some mystery, the concept and name of Telos seems to have their origin in a woman named Sharula Dux, who claims to be a Lemurian princess born in the city. She was 350 years old and came to the surface in the 1980s as an ambassador to spread the good word about her home. Here's a snippet from one of the few existing recordings of her. California was part of the colonies, part of the area of the Lemurian lands. And they understood that Mount Shasta and those areas of California would survive the cataclysms. Mount Shasta already being a place of great sacredness on this planet. And they constructed the city that we now call Telos. In Lemuria, the volcanoes started erupting so fast and sent so much debris into the air that where they had intended to try and save at least a million people from the Lemurian mainlands, they were only able to save 25,000. And additionally, John Steinbeck is a liar and a fraud. <laughs> he knows nothing of California. It turns out Sharula was actually Bonnie Condi, a stripper from Hollywood whose stage name was Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> that rules, man. She sounds awesome. She got the name Sharula from a romance novel titled Sunrise of Splendor. Here's just a sampling of her description of the city. Computers. The computer system is amino acid based and serves a vast array of functions. The system monitors intercity and galactic communication while simultaneously serving the needs of the individual at home. It can, for example, report your body's vitamin or mineral deficiencies or, when necessary, convey pertinent information from the Akashic records for personal growth. Money. Non-existent. All inhabitants' basic needs are taken care of. Luxuries are exchanged via a sophisticated barter system. Now it's starting to sound like a Queen Didolo. Childbirth. A painless three months, not nine. <laughs> a very sacred process whereby, upon conception, a woman will go into the temple for three days. 
immediately welcoming the child with beautiful music, thoughts, and imagery. Water birthing in the company of both parents is standard. I want to run on the political platform of uh, three months to carry a baby, not nine. <laughs> Folks, we're having the um, pregnancy period. Height. Due to cultural differences, average heights of subterranean citizens vary. Generally, six foot five to seven foot five in Telos. Age unlimited. Death by degeneration <laughs> is simply not a reality in Telos. Most choose to look in age between 30 and 40 and stay there, while technically <laughs> they may be thousands of years old. By not believing in death, this society is not limited by it. This is like if you founded a religion in, this, in like the id of the villages. It's, it's like they're just like, yeah, and yeah, we'd be tall and beautiful, 30 to 40 forever. The childbirth was awful. That All those experiences, let's cut that by about two-thirds. And uh, there's no money. People just bring over beautiful vases for me to enjoy. And what's more, the computer is actually liquid now. It doesn't, I don't have to squint to look at the screen. <laughs> Diane Robbins gives us a more florid firsthand impression. Okay, if you were to enter into Telos through Mount Chasta, you would see a very beautiful city. All lit up, clean, fresh air, water flowing from the center of the earth. You would see people walking around. They don't have highways. They, they walk on moving sidewalks. There are carts or like snow, small snowmobiles that they sit in to go from one end of the city to the other. And you would see people in brightly colored clothing, beautiful colored clothing and a fresh, fragrant atmosphere. And there's actually sunlight inside Telos. There's a crystal that was brought from the planet Venus into the city of Telos that's coupled with electromagnetic energy that gives full spectrum lighting. So you see beautiful light, fragrance in the air, beautiful people, everyone's smiling, no one is rushing anywhere except for the people on the snowmobiles uh, well they can rush if they want but it's for sport in telos the snowmobiles only are able to go four to five miles per hour everybody gets a jet ski <laughs> <laughs> and here's ashalyn and diane describing the wonderful life the telosians lead there's no prisons in in telos there's no depression in telos the kids in Telos, when you meet them, they're like jumping up and down. They're so excited about life, they can barely hold still because all they've ever experienced is love and support. Everybody has everything that they need there. They grow their own food because eating food is pleasurable. They don't need it to exist, but they share and make sure that everybody has everything that they need. Um, and in Telos, there's more than just the Telosians who live there. I've seen extraterrestrials there. I've seen ascended masters there. I've seen, you know, small beings. Supposedly, all the animals that have been extinct live in Telos. And nobody eats meat there, including the animals. So they all live in a peaceful, joyful way. In Telos, the people have no no anger, no 
It's just, they just express love. They have cooperation, no competition. They have no idea of what sickness is. There's no sickness, aging, or death. They have gained their immortality. They learned the futility of war. All right. So you're telling me I can go to Telos and see like extinct megafauna, like the giant sloth. And the dodo. And the dodo. Well, I'm already sold. I mean, dodo's small. The giant sloth is like 20 feet long. So uh, I'm really, I'm on board. Guys, you're totally missing the point of every single dinosaur being there, but being vegetarian. (laughs) You get to meet a raptor that will not eat you. No, they're eating impossible burgers. (laughs) Impossible humans. They're like the same, they're the same shape as a human, but it's totally plant-based. They even have the blood. How one enters into Telos is hotly debated. Some believe there's a physical entrance like a door or a cave. Others believe the entrance is more etheric and entered by your astral or light body, usually through meditation. Here's Peter's thoughts on the debate. No, there is not, there is not a physical door into the mountain. There are, there are caves and there are etheric doors, definitely. It's just I've met so many people. The people I know that say they've been there all turned out to have cooked the stuff up later. You know, like a friend of mine, not a friend, a guy I met at the Seven Sons Cafe said uh, <laughs> he was in Telos in the morning. He said, you won't be seeing your friend Jonathan anymore because he's in Telos. I saw him in Telos and he told me he's not coming out. Well, I ran into Jonathan a couple hours later, you know, so. <laughs> hey, Jonathan was, at, yeah, he was at the plant store, you know, picking up some Dude, succulents. Incredible. I cornered him. I cornered him. I said, hey, man, thought you were supposed to be in Telos. Uh my other buddy uh, <laughs> said that you would be there. And he's like, he's like, oh, well, I was going to go, but. Uh, I couldn't have been fucking your wife. I was in Telos. <laughs> I did find one photo of a guy standing beside a door hewn into the rocks. Sadly, they've been debunked as entrances to utility access tunnels. I included oh. a photo for you yeah, guys. This, this well, looks yeah. even more like the Indiana Jones ride. They do look like utility access tunnels. This brings us to the daddiest ascended master of them all, Telos's high priest, Adama. Predictably, he's seven feet tall with blue eyes and long, flowing blonde hair. There's some contention over who channeled Adama first, Diane or a woman named Aurelia Louise Jones. It seems Aurelia has the strongest claim. While living in Montana in 1997, she says she started receiving messages from a being named Adama and the Lemurian Council of Light. They told her to move to Shasta and spread the good word. It turns out she was also a big Battlestar Galactic fan, (laughs) whose main character was named Adama and commanded a vast space station. Come on! Come Mm. on! Come on! That would be just like a bad joke to make. I mean, fuck! (laughs) Aurelia also wrote a book that her cat channeled to her called Angelo's Message to the World. A snippet from the publisher's description reads, quote, Angelo's eloquent feline words penetrate deeply into our hearts and fill us with love, wisdom, and mystery of the feline species and other animal species. Angelo reminds us the opportunity we humans have to develop an endearing and exhilarating relationship with other species. This book will open your heart to the spiritual awareness of cats. I'm good on feline words penetrating deeply into my heart, dude. <laughs> I don't care if it'll fill me with love and wisdom. I, I know how this works. <laughs> the picture of the cat is so funny yeah, on the cover. Like, of my the book. angel. Angelo's message. And here he is just sitting on a tablecloth. I think she's, she looks like she's <laughs> sitting on like a patch of like astroturf or like a couple of leaves have been laid out. Like she looks like she's an ad for a cat. 
Here's Diane on her claim that Adama first came to her. I used to live in Upper State New York, Rochester, New York. And one day in about 1987, I was sitting in my living room with a notebook and a pen. And suddenly I felt this wonderful energy just nearly lift me off the chair. And I heard a voice telepathically say, I am Adama. We've been trying to contact you. Will you take my messages? And I said, yes. And he dictated the first message to me. And then we met two or three times a week for a number of years. Diane gets a little flush when she talks about Adama. Yeah, I mean, sounds like some exhilarating sort of coffee, coffee and tea dates, some day dates. The Shasta Vortex. After the 1980s, this new age stew congealed into a psychedelic rainbow-colored jelly mold. 1987 heralded the worldwide event known as the Harmonic Convergence, a date supposedly foretold by the Mayans to herald the dawn of a new age, where planets align in a significant way once every 23,000 years. Gurus and seekers all over the world were to meditate simultaneously to cleanse the planet, and Shasta Town became one of the power hubs. Thousands advanced on the town and the foothills, where at least one unscrupulous trickster sold tickets to a guided tour into Telos. When the ticket holder showed up the next day, the guide was predictably nowhere to be found. (laughs) I want to buy a blonde wig, shave my face, and run a kind of Meals on Wheels thing for Shasta community, um, where the meal served as me as a snack. You could probably do some modification of that, I'm sure. Yeah. One of the most significant events was an elderly lady's TV malfunctioning in such a way that the image of an angel-like apparition burned into the screen. The TV soon became a shrine which hundreds lined up to visit, until the TV repairman came and fixed it. (laughs) (laughs) You destroyed the harmonic convergence! On the subject of angels, just down the road outside of town, the I Am activity is holding its yearly biblical pageant titled I Am Come, with exclamation mark. (laughs) In their own special version of Christ's tale, angels with wings of purple, white, and pink fill an amphitheater beneath the mountain with a theatrical stage set that looks straight out of a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. We missed the pageant during our visit, but we did get to walk through the empty Biblescape, and no doubt, Godfrey Ray King was watching us from beyond. Here's a clip from the pageant with Jesus uttering the immortal words before an elevator covered in camouflage lifts him up into the treetops. Now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with all the glory I had with thee before the world was. I am come. Unspeakable things. Well, that's a pretty impressive effect. He was uh, floating up into the sky, all glowing. Yeah, pretty impressive special effects, I gotta say. We were fortunate enough to see the bizarre lenticular clouds that hover eerily above the mountain. It's long been rumored that these lentil-shaped clouds are hiding spacecraft that refuel inside Telos. The belief proliferated widely enough that the U.S. Forestry Service put out a statement denying the clouds' extraterrestrial origins. The official explanation is that they are stationary clouds that form in parallel alignment to the wind direction. Our friend Shahan mostly agrees, but she says there are exceptions. Behind me, you'll see many photos of lenticular clouds. 
and some of them are absolutely amazing in many levels high. And what I will say, if you go to the museum, they will tell you how to make lent how lenticular clouds are made, and it's through the wind and the water vapor, whatever. And that's great, and that's true sometimes, but there was one time <laughs> when a huge lenticular was along the side of the mountain. It stayed in the same place for three days. The wind is blowing and other clouds are coming and going, and this thing stayed in the same place <laughs> for three days. And yeah, I watched Star Trek, so I have to say, hmm, I think maybe a little cloaking on that. And so, yeah, I believe that. <sighs> that we're not alone and that there are, we have visitors too. All lenticulars are not clothed on spaceships like some people think, but I think some of them are, and that's my opinion. And yes, now I'm probably sounding like a raving maniac from Mount Shasta, but... There's a Travis view in Mount Shasta, I guess. This is just such a, a moderate take. It's like, no, no, no. Some of them are cloaked spaceships, but uh, most of them are just exactly what they say if in the science stuff, you know, the whatever, the mist, the vapor, who, who gives a shit about that? But I, I'm just, I'm a little bit jealous that these people live in a world where a giant disc is hovering over a national, uh, an international sort of a landmark, a, a place of majestic beauty. Because I've seen Star Trek too, but I've also <laughs> seen Independence Day. <laughs> and usually when a big round disc is hovering over like, you know, a landmark for more than a couple days, that usually means that the landmark is toast. <laughs> so I my hat's off to to the positive thinking and, um, uh, you know, sort of optimism of the Mount Shasta community. A possible real life ascended master may call modern day Shasta his home. At the age of six, the now 50-year-old Mark Neese was told by his parents that he was the reincarnation of St. Germain. Here's a quote from his website. St. Germain walked into the body of Mark Chess Neese in the year 1971. Germain was raised in Northern California. He has been a student of esoteric teaching since the age of six under his parents' tutelage. He was born in the seventh month in the seventh house on the street, the address of which was 77. <laughs> His was the seventh family to live in the house. He was born the seventh child with very strong family values. Signed, you, Tommy you, Numbers. <laughs> you could say his family values were seven times as strong as his brothers and sisters. On that same website, you can buy Lemurian diamonds, virtual healing sessions with Mark, see a gallery of his paintings and photoshops of him imagined as St. Germain, and photos of his auras. The Lemurian diamonds, uh, they actually give you a plus two to intelligence. No, I think they, they end up uh, getting you killed uh, by the end of the Gems movie. You can get them uh, if you farm the Beastmaster in the, in the Moonrock Caves. Yeah, if you beat the boss there, he drops two Lemurian diamonds. So for anybody who's, who's playing Elden Ring, that's a, a pro tip. Jake's brain is going to be like this for the duration of his play of Elden Ring, I assume, a couple weeks more. A couple weeks more. A couple weeks. I'm level 80. I'm I'm doing pretty well. Probably will beat the game around a level 100, level 120 Cut or mic. so. So yeah, I'm, I'm Cut his mic. about 75% of the way there. Mark's Facebook profile lists him as the U.S. representative of Sweden's Unity Party, which seems to be a new age environmental focused group and a presidential advisor, though I don't know which president he's referring to. He's also a fantastic skateboarder. Oh, cool. Sa yeah. Sadly, we didn't get to meet him during our time there, and we missed the last St. Germain World Tour, which took place in 2017. I included a couple images of him you guys can enjoy. Yeah, man. Looks handsome. 
It's like Dan Bolzerian of the spiritual world. One aside is that uh, Peter Mount Shasta was hiking on the mountain one day and stumbled upon Mark Neese, who sort of demands everyone call him St. Germain. And Mark had sort of come up to him pleading that, that he'd gotten lost on the mountain and needed a help getting home. And Peter said, well, if you're St. Germain, you shouldn't need any help from me, Mark. Wow. And, and made him sort of uh, renounce the name St. Germain in, a, in, in, in order to Ending. lead him back home safely. Ending the reign. <laughs> in my rabbit holing for more modern day Shasta content, I stumbled upon a public access like talk show that started in 2010, hosted by a wonderful man named Arthur Aday, called Aday in Telos. Each episode of this real-life Stephen Brule has a lovely cast of local characters like vibrational alchemists, hollow-earth citizens, karaoke enthusiasts, and crystal skull channelers. Here are some special moments. Welcome, everybody! This is Arthur with a day in Telos. And today is uh, October. September, October. I, it must be October. We're going to talk about some words of wisdom. And walking in between dimensions. <laughs> wow. Have you ever thought about that? How do you know uh, if somebody is talking to you from the other side? And it's not yourself. <laughs> think about that. He is visibly what fucked up. What brings you here to this beautiful place in Manchester? I was living in a yoga ashram in Florida, and I got on Facebook, and someone came on and said, you got to get to Shasta. It's the new Jerusalem. you got to get out here. And the I new said, Jerusalem. Yeah, so I said. Ooh, the new Jerusalem. <laughs> that guy's awesome. Oh, man. This, like, the older man to the left is... He's asking this this other man in the center who um, is apparently he was born in the hollow earth and he's wearing a hollow earth headband. He's asking him some questions about Telos. I've heard recently that our secret government beamed harp energy into Telos and now the Telos people have moved out. <laughs> and I was very skeptical. In Actually, that. no, they have not. That does They're not still there. Me. Yes. See... Talos is a is part of the Agarthian network. Yes, I know. And it also has a force field around the, the city. So there's no way that your government could even think about entering into Talos unless they were invited. We may hear it. We may hear it. What the fuck? We may hear it. And it feels so amazing. Is it? <laughs> So for those who can't see that, the vibrational alchemist is sort of cupping his ears toward his, the front of his face and, and making some very nasal sounds. And his name is Yoshi. Insane stuff. Even more recently, in 2018, a new mystery appeared on the mountain in the form of a 60-foot deep hole. It was dug under the cover of darkness with little evidence left behind. A local filmmaker named Elijah Sullivan has been trying to get to the bottom of the mystery with his documentary titled The Whole Story. The running theories include illegal digging for indigenous artifacts, gold mining, or a tunnel into Telos. And then there's architect, boxer, flamenco dancer, Olympic gymnast Eugene Tsui, who truly does look like an ascended master incarnate, and you should all image search him immediately. He's known for the famous house in Berkeley that looks like a fish designed a spaceship. 
And he's been trying to get funding to build an actual underground complex in Mount Shasta called Telos. That's to be the world's first true zero impact office complex. Ugh. An office, office complex. complex. Yeah. Oh, that goes against everything For that the Shastonians sake. believe in. Oh, make it a parking lot. Why not, you fucking demon? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Why don't you put a Taco Bell down there? No, they're gonna, they're gonna hollow out Mount Shasta and install cubicles. On a darker note, the Love Has One cult started moving into the Shasta area a few years back, and it's thought that their leader, Amy Carlson, a.k.a. Mother God, actually died there before the corpse was moved to Colorado. And contrary to its 1940s incarnation that wanted more government representation in rural areas, the secessionist movement of the state of Jefferson has taken on a far-right anti-government character. Members of the movement organized armed anti-lockdown demonstrations with militia groups in the county. Militia member and state of Jefferson ally Carlos Zapata was quoted as saying, This is a warning for what's coming. It's not going to be peaceful much longer. Citizens are going to turn into revolutionary citizens real soon. We need to make politicians scared again. Yep. This ever-complexifying parade of the bizarre has made Shasta ripe for the television networks to pluck from. Jeff Goldblum was out there searching for Bigfoot with my friends Greg and Dana Newkirk. Giorgio Tsikalos just released an Ancient Aliens episode there. A pop star whom I can't yet mention was exploring the paranormal on the mountain. And a show called Strange World shoehorns in a true crime angle with a disappearance that doesn't seem all that mysterious. There's also a spiritual drama called Dreams Awake set there that no one should check out. Okay. My absolute favorite piece of media is a feature film from 2009 called Beyond Lemuria that mashes up the Shaver mystery and Mount Shasta legends. It was directed by a real-life wizard magician warlock named Carol Poke Runyon and the entire two hours are up on YouTube. It looks like they casted it at the local book club meeting at the Crystal Shop. So enjoy this sampling of outstanding clips of evil psychic scientists, three-eyed goblin gods, a Lemurian princess in a tiny bikini, and a Big Lebowski-inspired Jesus. To Native Americans, the mountain was the home of their gods. But they also believed that fearsome creatures who squeezed their victims to death, lived in the caverns under the lava beds that flowed from the ancient volcano. Power-hungry scientists, using the latest interdimensional theories in quantum physics, make contact with the hidden world of the Daros. Anyone can receive, but you must be a psychic to transmit. Your mind must be completely linked to this machine, and that's when it's really dangerous. No, Zoltan, I won't go back into those caves. Never again. <laughs> Leslie, I'm not forcing you to go. I can't make you do anything. Leslie, just one more time. And the recognition, the fame, and the money will all be yours. <laughs> I am Simyaza, first among those whom you call the fallen angels. We were the elder gods of your myths, the Elohim of your scripture. We were the titans in the Atlans, the founders of Lemuria and Atlantis. We advanced your intelligence. We evolved you to serve our needs. You sought a Lemurian temple inside this holy mountain, and you have succeeded in your quest. Are, are you really the Lord? 
I am. And wherever you are, there am I also. Oh, that is like that is like Russian uh, version of The Hobbit. <laughs> Incredible I, stuff. I, I suggest if you don't have patience for the full two-hour film, there's a 10-minute long trailer that's that is, it's worth it with great music and sound design. And nice. Every, every trailer should be 10 minutes, honestly. You can't get the full humor until you really like get that like older middle-aged guy you met at the library like staring at you with Oakleys from like what looks like a, a toy set out to look like a Star Trek uh, contraption. It's absolutely mind-boggling stuff. To get an on-the-ground update from the mountain, I conducted a couple interviews with locals just for this episode. The first is with documentary filmmaker Audie Carlyle, who is one of the rare few who was born and grew up there. I asked her what it was like being brought up in this soup of the weird, how it's changed, and about her series of short documentaries called Shasta Stories. I grew up in Mount Shasta, so I just popped out of the womb in the hospital and didn't really have a choice, but I'm grateful. And I I was homeschooled here and I grew up in a sort of church community, including Mennonites and no internet, almost. I moved away after about 19 years and have returned the last two years. I've been rediscovering it in, in its own new way. When did you basically start hearing about some of the stranger beliefs and legends? and it, Or is that just like a part of the everyday there? That's a good question. I think I heard of them, but it wasn't in my circle. And so it was kind of like, oh, there are these... These, you know, hippies that live in town and I don't understand what they do. And then there's these other people that dress in purple. And, you know, if you if you see them, they're always in pastels. I don't know what they do. But when I was in high school, um, I was really interested in kind of starting to get to know different communities here. You know, I think when something's foreign to you, it's really easy to call it a cult. And so not to say people were doing that in mean ways here, but, you know, believing in the Bible when I was younger, uh, I felt like truth shouldn't be threatened by anything, right? If it's truth, it's going to stand. And so I was very proactive in going and asking questions. Yeah, as, as Bill does say, you can always find truth, even from a charlatan. And I'm not saying that they are charlatans, but I, I did find tidbits to take away from every group that I interacted with. So what what have you seen that's changed in town over the years? Like, you know, I was there about three years ago and it didn't seem like it had gotten like everywhere else quite yet, like so polarized politically. I mean, it has happened here. I'm grateful. I think it's a little bit less. When I came here, I was getting invited to some kind of MAGA parties and it was the weirdest version because I, you know, I'd been living in New York and I had thrown my own kind of anti-Trump parties and you, you know, you know the Trump stereotype of rednecks, but these were fascinating because they weren't the rednecks. We have plenty of, you know, and I actually say that endearingly, there's some lovely (laughs) rednecks, but none of them were at these meetings, you know, they were all kind of uh, hippies. And that really surprised me because I think there's always those stereotypes you hear, especially when you're in a city. And so, you know, these are people who are all, you know, really big on recycling. They're all vegan. They're all, you know, kind of into ecstatic dance or drumming and and crystals. And yet, you know, they're very strong on their their 
Trump beliefs. And, and that surprised me. And so that was interesting just to actually listen to their opinions. There is a divide, but right now I think it's a little bit um, better than it was maybe two years ago. Can you tell me about what Shasta Stories is as a series and why you decided to start? Well, so Shasta Stories is a small or short documentary series about locals in Siskiyou County. They started just as profile pieces on different individuals, whether they lived in Mount Shasta or Weed or Dunsmere. And now it's carried on to doing episodes that are more based on a topic or joining different people's stories who are thematic. I started it because I saw this painter who was painting Christmas windows at a cafe. And it was like walking back into the 70s. And I'm a bit of a suckler for the like analog world. So I ended up just wanting to sit with him. He had this kind of lassie type dog and he, you know, was playing his music. And so I just started following him wherever he went to paint. And I was really, you know, impressed by his story as the more time I spent. And so I just started to think of all these really interesting people that I was curious about. And the format of asking them to tell their story on camera was the medium that I felt most comfortable with. Maybe if you just pick your top, like two or three of your favorite stories, either because of the people or because of something you learned. You know, I've been trying to represent different sides of the community, of course. Um, and so I was very honored to film, you know, Bev Wilson Hoffman, uh, and who was one of the first crystal shops in Mount Shasta. And, of course, Peter Mount Shasta and, and, and his amazing apparitions of St. Germain, as well as another man named Ross Sanders, who's a logger, a third-generation logger. And he tells these incredible stories where, like most loggers, have almost died and all his body parts that have been injured. Yet his story does kind of resonate with Peter Mount Shasta's. You know, he has stories of having visions and, and hearing voices and... They both bring it to this universal place of, you know, what happens to us after we die and and what's the point of climbing to the peak of the mountain and being ascended if you're not going to go back and help the people. And so it always ends up coming back into the community and each other's circles, even if we don't know that person. There's so much overlap. And I think during... COVID and especially how that has made everyone very politically divided. It's really been a rewarding series to make here because at least for the moment while someone is watching someone's story, they can be in their shoes. It's been really unifying to help diffuse that, that, that gap, which is just gets wider and wider the more we feed it. How have people seen it and what have they thought? I you know, have been putting all the videos online but a lot of the people that I actually interact with, you know, they don't have a smartphone or they don't have a laptop. So I decided at a certain point it would make sense to do a screening. And so we took over the movie theater in town and we had sold out um, almost on both nights, um, definitely on the first night and the second night. But, you know, so we packed about 120 people into these cinemas and they're all different people. It was amazing. Um, you know, you had your, your hippie travelers and then right next to, you know, your old Russians who moved here, you know, when they were in their 20s. And, and the reactions were really beautiful. What I like about your series is that 
it what makes it so different from most media or stories about Mount Shasta, in mine included, is that almost everyone focuses on the stranger beliefs and legends like Telos and the inner earth and Saint Germain, Ascended Masters, all of that. You know, I don't I don't set out to do this, but a, but a lot of others have. It's like it's kind of like a freak show. Is that one of the reasons why you're doing it? And also, does does it bother you in any way when you see like, oh, Mount Shasta's on ancient aliens? It does bother me a little bit just because I know that there's such a genuine richness here. But I also love it. You know, I'm always quick to watch those things. And you're looking for something you recognize or someone that you know yourself. Um, so I think those are going to keep happening. And I think that's really fun. But for the locals, you know, that does get old. And we know that there's more here. I think it was also something that because I grew up here, I felt like I could offer that view deeper than, you know, someone who just showed up and, and, and could only see those who were really eager to tell their stories. What do you personally think about Talos and the inner earth and, you know, that Lemurians now live under Mount Shasta and what do you think about them in general? And is there anything that you actually like, you know, believe or find that aligns with you in some ways? I think, I mean, I hope they invite me on in. I'd love to visit. I, I, I don't know, you know, it's the premise of Shasta stories was to start to capture some of those similar starting tales that say the mountain called me and I never had that and so a little bit of me has always doubted when someone says that because I can't relate to it and yet I don't doubt it in regards to saying that it's their real experience I just haven't had that and so I'm I want to listen and I want to understand what that's like because my experience here is so different I I, I hope Telos is down there I'd love that I think I'm just interested in the people who live at the mountain's base and and their stories and how they all arrived where they're at. You can check out Shasta Stories at audiecarlisle.com. That's A-U-T-I-E-C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E.com. And she's on Instagram at Audie Carlisle. I also caught up with Bill Meese, the single greatest chronicler of Mount Shasta's history. He tells us of new evidence of the genesis of the Telos legend and gets candid about his own unexplainable experience on the mountain, which honestly blew my mind. What is it about the legends themselves that you wanted to get such a deep handle on? Yeah, you know, it, basically I was paid to go through a collection of about 3,000 books and articles on the history of Mount Shasta. You know, and a good 100 to 200 of those were original documents documenting the spiritual legends of Mount Shasta. So it wasn't out of my personal interest. I was just paid to do it. But once I started doing it, I could see the connections and the plagiarisms. And so that kind of bothers me. Plagiarism bugs me. When I discovered uh, Sister Phaedra, she was great space contactee with a very long history of spiritual followers. And she lived right across the street from where I live. And so when I learned about this concept of cognitive dissonance, it's if you've probably heard of it, it's it's kind of when you're confronted with proof that's contrary to your belief system, you just can't believe it. It just doesn't compute. And so that concept was actually developed in relationship to Sister Phaedra, because her followers were believing that a spaceship was going to come and take them away right before a catastrophic event on Earth. 
And these two university professors infiltrated her group to learn what would happen if the prophecy doesn't come true. What would happen to her believers? And the surprise was, after the prophecy didn't come true, these fairly reputable people gave up all their possessions and they went to the assigned place and it didn't happen. And they thought that that would be the end of it, that all of these followers would go, oh, this is a bunch of baloney. But the exact opposite happened. They, all these followers doubled down, came up with rationales, basically saying that it was our love as a group that prevented the earth from being destroyed. And they kind of rationalized things away. The sociologists called that cognitive dissonance. In our polarized political sphere or in our war spheres, everybody has their belief system and they can't believe the other side of the story. There are parts of our psyche that just can't accept the truth. And it's it's a kind of an ego survival, if you will. And so that's one of the, you know, that is maybe at the moment the biggest issue we have. And so that psychological impediment that was developed around one of these Mount Shasta spiritual teachers, and it became a mainstream concept in psychology. What's changed in Mount Shasta in the last three years? Did, did the politics get more polarizing? Did you start seeing the conspiracy theories come up? Yeah, you know what I noticed a lot more, you know, I call them kind of weaponized pickup trucks driving around. Um, looked like they're from out of town, but it just kind of freaked me out. It's kind of calmed down. That was kind of during the election period. You know, in terms of the political polarization, people from the anti-vax, I would call it more liberal anti-vax movement, coinciding with the more right-wing anti-vax. You know, there's a lot of similarity in attitudes, and that's a little confusing. You can't tell who's who anymore. (laughs) It's great. It's really pretty funny. Do you think that over the years that you've seen spiritualism and myth-making in Mount Shasta getting stronger or growing? Are you seeing any new groups popping up? I think right now it's on the ascendant, to tell you the truth. It's really pretty interesting. There are all kinds of spiritual retreats, especially for this summer going on. I think people have been cooped up for so long. They have so much anxiety. There are all these opportunities for people to come here and and participate with others of like mind and free oneself from all the cares of the world and open up and, and get some peace. And then maybe reevaluate what their life path is. Seems to be dozens of spiritual teachers kind of promoting themselves as teachers. It's becoming bigger than ever and all this mankind at the same time. Have you caught wind of any bubblings or updates in, in the whole Telos verse? I came across something that really intrigued me. And I think I've been able to connect the subterranean legends of Mount Shasta to a Native American creation story. And that that kind of was a completion for me. So it really doesn't, it doesn't really add to the Telos story, but it helps explain how Mount Shasta became known for its subterranean Telos communities and Lemurians and those things. Unless it's a true story, I mean, that's a whole other thing. And, you know, the other element though that we don't talk about enough is the spiritual experiences that people are having are genuine, emotionally genuine, and and seem real to people. And so the stories have a little bit more heft to them rather than just a story. People are really invested in their own experience and believe it to be true and therefore feel like they're justified in continuing the stories. There's just more to human psychology than we know about. People are experiencing these visionary experiences, but they may be just projections, holographic types of 
of waking state dreaming. That's what I call it. In our doc, you mentioned that you had some visionary experiences of your own on the mountain. What was the character of those? Yeah, you know, without getting into detail, but I I would say in a sense, I I learned um, that there is an inter, I felt an interdimensional, how do I say it, presence of high technology that was able to beam energy directly to an individual like myself, man-made or or other intelligent form made, uh, but but something not nature, but mechanical, but beautiful, and seems to be on different dimensions. And that was really an eye-opener. And how did you, as basically like a scientist and historian, how did you approach that experience afterwards? Well, you know, because I, I had some meditation training and had taken certain psychedelics as a kid, um, so that I was just a skeptic. You know, I had this amazing experience. It felt as real as anything I've ever felt. But I'm a skeptic and I just go, well, that was interesting. I just file it. I just go, well, that was an experience because I've been in the higher states of consciousness before. And so it's not, I'm not so believing in my own experience because I've, I've, I've learned that you could create all kinds of realities. So I just, I just, that particular experience, I just filed away going, that was really interesting. But I'm not so sure I didn't create it. You know, I didn't, I'm not so sure I didn't project a whole world out there for me to experience. But it must make you a little more, I guess, like sympathetic when you then hear of other people's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's 100% true. Because, you know, a lot of what I do, I could call it kind of debunking because I can see where people plagiarize stories and how they make things up on their own. But at the same time, I've been blessed with those experiences that, that, that I can understand that maybe, maybe what they've experienced is the real deal. I'm not coming back. My unascended listeners, what could possibly be going on in this little mountain town? Why are so many people having spiritual awakenings here? It's too dismissive to say these people are all cranks sharing in mass delusions. But it's just as lazy to use the nebulous term of energy vortex often associated with places like Sedona, Arizona, or like Utah's Skinwalker Ranch, that the veil to other dimensions is just thinner in Shasta. There have been attempts at materialist explanations for the spiritualist pull, like magnetic or gravity anomalies due to the lack of iron and magnesium in the rock compared to the surrounding area. But those have just been vague musings. Perhaps a hundred plus years of ever compounding mystical expectations is enough to trigger these experiences. Geologist and spiritual seeker James Tipton said this of his own experience on the mountain. In theory, there should be no difference between meditating in your living room or on a mountaintop. Yet for this writer, on Shasta, there was a catalytic movement, an undeniable facility, which made it a whole lot easier to expand consciousness. But if we're no closer to the what, we can at least probe why these legends are deeply resonating with the Shastonians and imagine there's meaning behind the beliefs. As a species, we've walked this earth for over 200,000 years, and we still haven't figured out how to live peacefully with each other or overcome the frailty of our bodies and minds. But what if there was a race of beings who had it all figured out, who had all the answers, if only we'd listen? A lot of these believers are older, some ill, lonely, or traumatized. These are people filled with existential dread about environmental collapse and world war, for whom an immortal life of peace and love is a powerful panacea. Compared to most of the other subjects profiled by QAA, the people and beliefs here seem benign, with the exception of some toxic positivity and hashtag ascended masters so white. 
In the words of Peter Mount Shasta, I don't want to put down anybody talking about telos because if it's a positive focus for them and they get juice out of it, you know, it's not hurting anything. You know, I mean, I believed in Santa Claus when I was a kid and I got presents and it made me feel good. Here's a being, omniscient being knows if you've been good or bad. You know, that was a, a beneficial fantasy or whatever. And I'm sure many people think that what I talk about is a fantasy too. These beliefs and their proponents may seem debunkable or ridiculous, but if we're too quick to judge, we can miss the point. In the book, Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain, Emily A. Frank beautifully writes, Proponents of alternative realities are not scientists and shouldn't try to be scientists. They are artists and myth makers for a constantly changing culture and should be respected for their abilities as poets, shamans, tricksters, and storytellers. Scientists tell us what the universe is, unattached to human needs and desires. Myth makers tell us how we, with very definite needs and desires, react to the world and thus teach us about ourselves. In the Greek language, telos means the end. The descriptions of the city sound a lot like the Western conception of heaven, down to the angel-like ascended masters and an everlasting life of peace and love. That gives a new context to someone like the 82-year-old Diane Robbins, who every day wears a t-shirt emblazoned with the word telos. In the final shot of our film, she stands beside her car with a license plate personalized with the words to telos, waving goodbye to us. No one can say for sure if our consciousness or spirit survives death, so perhaps we'll all meet someday under the mountain. Well, if they think, if people think this is crazy or new agey, guess what? They'll just come back for another lifetime and they'll keep coming back until they wake up. People on this planet have already had between 500 and 1,000 lifetimes in the last 12 million years. We keep coming back and back trying to get it and they'll just keep coming back. But I'm not coming back. My Honda Accord will disappear into uh heaven and or an underground cavern um and uh you know what you can uh piss off about how i am not coming to christmas anymore <laughs> brad that was fantastic stuff i'm really glad that we're going to be working with each other ongoing um so you have a little note here uh as the writer of this episode why don't you go ahead and uh, tell the listeners about this Yes, so along with my co-director, Simon Ennis, I've been greenlit to start shooting a feature documentary that features intimate portraits of conspiracy theorists. So if any of the listeners know of little-known slingers of conspiracies or family or friends who have fallen down the rabbit hole or even climbed back out, um, even experts on the topic, please reach out to me at brad.wtf at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Love and Saucers or on Instagram at bradwtf. Awesome. Yeah, thanks again. And thank you, listener, for listening to another episode of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and subscribe for five bucks a month. You'll get a whole second episode every week, plus uh, some stuff that's upcoming. And then you'll also get access to our entire archive of premium episodes. And when you sub, you help us stay advertising free and editorially independent. For everything else, we have a website, QAnonAnonymous.com. Listener, until next week. May the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy. It's fact. And now, today's auto cue. We love you, Krishna Master. You are free now. Please remember you are free. You are free from the reincarnation. Do you do my day? It's a city.
Ancient Egypt. Yes, it's 